0: Welcome to Antelope Road Christian Fellowship. We're glad you're joining us for today's message. For service times or to join a disciple group, please visit myarcf.com. If you've been with us, um, you know what's going on, but let me catch everybody up to speed. This is week seven, final week of the series called The Heart Beneath Money, where Jesus has been dealing with us kind of rough and tumble, if we're honest. Because every time we try to get Jesus to talk about money, he wants to talk about our heart, something going on deep down that should not be there. It's kind of like he's saying, if your heart loved God first and then served people second and you put yourself last, your money problems would actually sort themselves out. Something about that sounds right, doesn't it? Yeah, well, let's dive into it today. Last part, entitled, Am I Enough?, I think any parent knows, but particularly uh, if your child has experienced some rough and tumble things, you know that some of the things that you consider bad behavior are not simply a child wanting to make your afternoon miserable. Sometimes what's deep in the soul of each of us because of our fallen nature, our rebellion against God, this brokenness horizontally, it came from a vertical brokenness, Children are oftentimes communicating to us through their behavior an insecurity of, am I enough? Am I loved? Do you love me no matter what? Do you accept me no matter what? Are you still my mommy no matter what? Are you still my daddy no matter what? And perhaps one of the greatest blessings in life is to be so deeply attached and so deeply connected to one's parents and caregivers that that never even pops into your mind. What a blessing. Kind of like not knowing what it's like to go hungry. What a blessing. I've, I've never starved. And I know what you're thinking, Pastor Greg, we already knew that. But there are different graces. Not everybody on earth necessarily gets that grace. With child to parents, one of the core questions that I'm asking when things are chaotic, am I enough? And of course, we know the, the real answer. A child's behavior is not this sacrifice made to the parent as if the parent is a deity, where the parent gets to decide, well, I will love you if you're good enough. That's just nonsense. Love is monodirectionally flowing, is that a word, unilaterally? Flowing from the parent to the child because that's what the relationship demands. That's how our Father in heaven has loved us unilaterally, irrespective of our behavior. The am I enough is something that comes from something very broken and very sad, that one day Jesus is going to wipe away every tear and that won't be there anymore. We experience something very similar in marriage, where even years into a marriage, in the middle of conflict, we can doubt the person's love for us. We ask this question, am I enough? Something going on in our soul sometimes Am I enough for my spouse? Or, or maybe it would say the other way, I feel like I, I, nothing I do is ever good enough. I can never satisfy you. I can never please you. But again, let me go back to what I just said about a child. Your spouse is not a deity, so we should not be making sacrifices to the spouse to earn what I want. I want their approval. There's something very broken in that. It's a good and a beautiful thing to want your spouse to be happy because you're loving them, you're serving them. But when our world crumbles because we don't have their approval... Not super awesome. But there is a third relationship where there is a deity involved and where there is a sacrifice involved. And there is somebody asking the question, Am I enough? Jesus Christ, every single day, and He's saying it to you right now, He's asking you, Am I enough? And He is not asking it like a fearful child, He's not asking it like a spouse who's insecure he is asking a critical question from the creator to the creation. He's saying, I have given more than you could possibly fathom in order to wash away your sins. I have given you all of me. When you were not asking for me, the scriptures say, while we were yet sinners, Christ died. And Jesus has now for 2,000 years, really before that, but when you read the Old Testament, but Jesus specifically since his cross 2,000 years ago, he has been asking his rebellious children across the world, I have given you all of me. I have sacrificed my very self to reconcile you back to my father. Am I enough? Because Jesus, again, he's not saying this insecurely. He knows his sacrifice is enough. He's God. He knows everything. He knows That this was the only way he could ransom all of humanity back to himself. Anybody who would believe. He knows this is enough. He's asking us because we need to figure it out. Do you see my cross for what it really is? Do you see my love for you in that? Am I enough for you? Pastor Greg, I thought this was a series about money. No. It's the heart beneath money. Today we're talking about contentment. And not being content, being covetous. God, you're holding out on me. God, you should have given me more. God, I I should have a better spouse. God, I should have more money. God, I should have better work opportunity. God, I should have better health. This is a scream to the cosmos. God, you're holding out. God, you're not giving me what I'm owed or what I'm due. You You gave so and so more. God, you're unjust. God, you're not giving me a fair shake. And his cross cries out to all of us and to our silly thinking, cries out, nonsense. Nonsense. Look how much I have given you. There is no room in the human heart for dissatisfaction in our God because he has given us more. Zeus never died for us. Mars didn't do it. Jupiter didn't do it. Aphrodite didn't do it. Baal didn't do it. Molech didn't do it. Nobody has laid down their own life to reconcile us to God. Nobody but Jesus. And so he is asking you now today, he's asking me, am I enough for you? And he's asking us because he knows we're going to find our greatest joy and our best possibly lived life is not one free from discomfort, free from pain. It's simply, no matter what the circumstances are, I'm going to find the fullness of joy in being content in who my God is. Let's talk about it. For those of you who are at home taking notes, jot this one down in the margin somewhere. We're going to learn this from the Apostle Paul in Philippians 4 in just a second. Contentment is a learned skill. It doesn't just show up. Contentment. I'm content with the resources God has given me. I'm content with the relationships that I have. I'm content with my lot in life. That contentment is not going to just magically show up. I became a Christian and the Holy Spirit's working on me. And one day, without any effort on my part, all of a sudden I'm going to be content. Nope, nope, and nope. Allow me to prove it. Paul, early church father, and by the way, he was holier than you. He had to learn it. So take a look. Read with me. We're going to do verses 10 through 20. How I praise the Lord that you are concerned about me again. He says to the church in Philippi, I know you've always been concerned for me, but you didn't have the chance to help me. Not that I was ever in need, for I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation whether it is with a full stomach or an empty, with plenty or with little, for I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Anybody surprised right now that has nothing to do with a touchdown? Was that just me? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What is the context of that verse, based on what we just read? Through Christ's strength, the Christian is capable of big things that seem impossible, namely... Being content no matter whether the circumstances are good or bad. Contentment is what is impossible for the human heart by itself. But with God, it is possible. Even so, you've done well to share with me in my present difficulty. As you know, you Philippians were the only ones who gave me financial help when I first brought you the good news and then traveled on from Macedonia. No other church did this. Even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent help more than once. I don't say this because... By the way, this isn't in the notes either. Last summer, we adopted five vision statements, and one of them is that we would be a church-planting church. That doesn't happen overnight, but let me just point out to you, the church at Philippi gave gifts to Paul more than once, and that's what he did. He traveled around sharing the gospel in cities that had never, ever heard it. This is important, okay? Verse 17, I don't say this because I want a gift from you. Rather, I want you to receive a reward for for your kindness. At the moment, I have all I need and more. I am generously supplied with the gifts you sent me with Epaphroditus. They are a sweet-smelling sacrifice that is acceptable and pleasing to God. Is that cool or what? God's happy with your giving. And this same God who takes care of me will supply all your needs from his glorious riches which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. Now all glory to God our Father forever and ever. Amen. Is that cool or what? Paul is cooler than you. He's cooler than me. He went to Iwana twice a week. He memorized verses for his verses. And guess what? He had to learn contentment. That's what the text says. I've learned. Whether my circumstances are great, my circumstances are lousy, I have learned. And how do you think he learned? This is really tough, if we're honest. He didn't learn it from a book. He learned it by experiencing it. When things were great, is Christ enough for me? When things are terrible, and and, and, and by the way, when he says, te- he, he means it like, was it 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians? He lists off all the things he's been through. So he's been beaten over and over by the Roman government for being a Christian preacher. So when he said, when he's locked in a prison and dependent on other people to bring him food to keep him alive, when he says, during the rough times I've learned to be content, he really means it. He really, really means it. He learned contentment. So this is important for us to know. It's going to take work. Contentment is not a microwave thing. It's going to be more of a crockpot thing. It's going to happen, and it's going to happen slowly. Unlike the typical American approach to salad. This is, if you're anything like me, this is your approach to salad. I ate a salad for lunch. That was four hours ago. Where's my six-pack? Right? I, I did the universe a salad. I wanted... You know, a giant burger and Chris Cuts and a Dr. Pepper, I wanted, and I made a sacrifice to the health gods. I really took one for the team. I ate a salad. Where's my six-pack abs? I should look amazing by now. And yet that is just not what we see. Paul had to learn it. We have to learn it. It is not going to happen overnight. Something else to jot down if you're taking notes. Contentment allows a Christian life to stay focused. Contentment allows a Christian life to stay focused. I'm drawing this from that exact same text. See how Paul he he just he doesn't miss a beat, he's not discouraged. He's gonna take the good news of Jesus Christ from one city to the next, to the next, to the next. And where you and I, our whole lives would probably be upset if we absolutely had no food, were in prison for the gospel. Like, that would be a little bit of a crisis, because we never experienced that before. And he's saying, I've been through that. I can be content in all circumstances. Let's get on with business. The world needs to know Jesus. You, you, don't tell me you didn't hear a focused man. In his joy, he's very focused on what God has put him, why God has put him on earth. He knows what he is supposed to do. If you call yourself a Christian, I want you to know... You want to stay focused on what God has told you to do, who God has told you to be? You're going to have to be content with who God is. Like the Levites, have you received him as your inheritance? You're not worried about stuff, you're not worried about land. You have God, and that's enough for you. That satisfaction in having God is what empowers you to go do your thing. Otherwise, if you're not satisfied in who God is and that he is your inheritance, you're going to run around like the rest of the world does trying to find a way to please yourself, appease yourself, satisfy yourself. And all of that is a distraction. None of it's the kingdom of God. I'm going to find satisfaction in poor sexual behavior. I'm going to find satisfaction in a substance abuse. I'm going to find satisfaction in doing self-righteous good deeds where I declare myself to be awesome and beat my chest. I'm going to find satisfaction somewhere if I don't have it rightly, in a strong, clear relationship with Jesus being enough for me. Something else to jot down. This is beautiful and powerful. This is more philosophical. I don't have a verse for it, but just think it through. Covetousness, desiring what I don't have, and contentment, they kill each other. Did you know that? If I'm trying to be content in who God is and that I have him, and that should be enough, covetousness destroys that. God, I want more than what you've given me. I want more than what you've given me. I want. Can you just hear the contentment dying? Now flip it on its head. Where you are choosing contentment. God, you are more than enough. God, you are more than enough. If I have nothing else, if I have no one else, if I don't have a dime to my name and I have no friends, you are enough for me. Do you hear covetousness dying? They cannot live together. One is always going to be killing the other. Or this, discontentment and the love of money are the same thing. Ouch. Are you ready? I'm going to prove it. Turn with me to Hebrews 13, or did I put it up on the screen? I did. Hebrews 13, 5. Don't love money. Be satisfied with what you have. Let's just take that first sentence for a second. Do you hear how those are juxtaposed against each other? You guys are so quiet. I need more amens. This is good don't love money be satisfied with what you have so those are right uh-oh <laughs> this is terrible <clears throat> i i if i'm if i'm not careful i used to think maybe that a, coveting you know that's well the 10th commandment that's i mean it's last for a reason it's not that big of a deal i mean murder You know, sleeping with somebody you shouldn't sleep with. Like, those are the really, you know, worshiping idols, those are the really big ones. And and coveting, well, that's just kind of this little tack on. According to the writer of Hebrews, if you're not satisfied with what you have, you love money. Ouch. For, God has said, answering why or because or how, for God has said, I will never fail you, I will never abandon you. Is that amazing? Don't love money. Choose to be satisfied with what you have because of the promise of God. I will never fail you. I will never abandon you. And again, this is one of those texts that out of its context and not letting all 66 books of the Bible speak in, it's going to sound like a prosperity verse. Be satisfied. Don't love money because everything's going to be fine. Okay, when God says to you, when he says to me, and specifically to his church, I will never fail you, we need to understand that our temptation in our brokenness is to determine what failure looks like and then shove it onto God. God, I lost my job. You failed me. When in the Bible, when in all 66 books, did God ever say to his children, I would like for you to define reality because I'm a little bit confused. God has never done that. What this means is, whether I am like Paul in a good spot or I am with Paul, I'm in a bad spot, he has not ever failed me. If I am faithful like John the Baptist and have my head chopped off for being faithful to the Lord, he has still not failed me. He hasn't. We tend to do this, amongst other things, we do this, One, because we're in a culture where we always think we have a vote, we always think we have a say. But two, we are so faithless about eternity. John the Baptist lost his head and entered into a perfect eternity with his Savior. He had no regrets that he got his head chopped off. Are you kidding me? In the moment, no, nobody's going to like that. But if you believe heaven is real, and that's a part of your inheritance as a Christ follower... You're going to stop wagging your finger at God, saying, "God, you did me wrong." And, and I need to—I need to be really clear, but I also want to be gentle toward the things that brutalize our world. Even to die of cancer, you, to get coronavirus and die from it—things that we we tend to think that those things are ultimate because we have this, frankly, a very secular view of life. If you think that this life is all there is then you're free to think that suffering and dying is the worst that could possibly happen. When the scripture already said, that's nonsense. The scripture tells us there's a second death. The second death is eternity apart from your creator because you didn't want him. You said, no Christ, you are not enough for me. That's the second death. It's yours if you choose it. It's, It's yours if you want it. He says to the Christian, I have never failed you and I will never abandon you. That's the why. That's the why I should not love money, be satisfied with what God is giving me because to be satisfied with the gift, are you ready? Means that I trust the giver. What God gave me is perfectly sufficient because I trust him. He'll never fail me. He'll never abandon me. Or as Paul says in 1 Timothy, here, nope, We're turning to this one. Wow. Pastor Greg needs to tell Pastor Greg what's going on here. Let's turn to 1 Timothy 6. Yet true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into this world. And we can't take anything with us when we leave it. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. Did you hear that? That's that's even gracious. You have food to keep you alive. You have a little bit of protection from the elements. He's not denying that a desire for those kind of things is good and healthy and reasonable. If we have food and clothing, let us be content. But people who long to be rich, did you hear that? His command was contentment, and then but. He transitions, just like the writer of Hebrews. But people who long to be rich, okay, so the desire for money is the opposite of contentment. They fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and day trading. No? Am I the only one? There are all kinds of get-rich-quick schemes that come from the love of money, right? And what do we get? Ruin? Destruction? For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people, craving money... They have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. How interesting. We bring this text up all the time when preachers are trying to tell the members of the church family not to love money. But right before it was a command of, toward contentment. Being content, I accept God. What you have given me is a good thing. Thank you thank you, you are enough, your gifts are more than enough, thank you is the opposite of the love of money. If we love money, we are not accepting Christ for who he is. Is he enough? Is he enough? We get to decide. We get to decide. In fact, we have to. Every human being has to decide, is he enough? So let's get practical. How do I learn contentment? Now, if you've been around the last, you know, at least since I've been here, you know Practical App is where it starts to hurt. This is where the preacher starts to tell us to do stuff. So put on your big girl pants or your big boy pants. Put on your helmets. And I have to do the same. I don't like some of the things I'm about to say. But I'm sharing them because I do believe they're appropriate biblical actions. So here we go. Pray carefully and honestly and honestly. About what God wants you to do to take steps toward contentment. Here's first Purposefully choose a standard of living and stick to it. Purposefully choose a standard of living and stick to it. You are looking at a picture of the Every Dollar app, what uh, Financial Peace University offers as their tool for how to tell your money where it should go ahead of time before the month starts instead of wondering where it went. This is the only way that a Christian person can say, if you're, if you're married, definitely do this with your spouse. If you're single, you get to kind of decide. I still recommend meeting with a close friend who loves Jesus, talking it through. This is the type of living that I believe is healthy and good and appropriate and allows enough margin for me to use God's money in ways that make God smile. This type of car is perfectly acceptable. I do not need to upgrade when my income goes higher. So whatever your tax bracket, whatever it is for you, you know, maybe you're a college student with a 14-year-old Honda, and even if you had a little more money, you're saying, hey, I'm going to stick with this car. If I have an increase in income, I'm going to go to something else. Maybe you're in the type of tax bracket where you've got a a five-year-old Ford pickup and that is perfectly sufficient to meet your needs. You can make the decision. In fact, you have to before the moment comes where somebody's going, hey, you've got this money and that little little, uh, shoulder angel shows up to fight the shoulder demon, right? Before they're talking to you about the ways that you could spend this windfall or this pay increase, deciding now and saying, actually... My pickup is perfectly sufficient. It completely meets our needs. Lord, thank you for what you've given me. Thank you for the five-year-old pickup. Or the brand of the vehicle. Or the number of vehicles. As a Christian, you can and I think should. We should all decide right now, what do I need? Can I find a way to be satisfied in what God has given me? To preemptively decide that when more money comes my way, I'm not intending to upgrade. For Emily and I, it's turned out a little bit different than this, but Emily and I spent the first three days of our honeymoon 12 years ago at Disneyland. And it was an unbelievable trip. It was wonderful. Uh, Mostly, it was just such a novel thing to get to be alone. And she's my wife, and we're on vacation together. And I'm an introvert, so really, I keep telling you guys that I love you, but it's more of an aspirational goal. Really, I just love Emily. She's my favorite. And I got to be with my favorite for three days, just Emily and Mickey and me. And it was great. And we said, hey, this would be really cool. We should try this about every five years or so. And we actually did it for our fifth anniversary. We went back and we thought, oh, we'll do it again on our 10th. But then we became parents and Uncle Sam threw some cash at us and we what do you do, right? You, you make this impulse decision. And so we went faster than our 10-year mark, and we ran out there and went uh, to Disneyland. But to, to that's just an example. To say there are some families who love... G- actually, pastor friend of mine uh, that goes to Disneyland every single year. That is their family vacation. They go, I think they only go for one day. But they, they have decided, this is what our vacation is going to look like. You kind of have to decide... We're a, a, a family that's going to go camping, and that's we're going to keep it lower cost. We're a family that can't afford vacation right now because we're working two, three jobs. Whatever's going on. To decide in advance, this piece of our budget is going to look this way, and if the Lord gives us more money, we're not upgrading it. And I don't know if Emily and I have ever had the discussion, but here's what it would look like for us. If Emily and I had said to ourselves, hey, we want to go to Disneyland once every five years, we're not going to upgrade then what this means is we're not going to go every two years. We're not going to go to Orlando. We're not going to just say, hey, let's go, you know, tour Europe. Not right now, but when everything's better and everyone's healthy. Hey, let's go tour Europe just because. It would be a purposeful decision on our part to say, we are satisfied with what the Lord has given us, and there's really no reason to upgrade. Don't tell Samsung and Apple this. They need you to upgrade every two years religiously. But sometimes it's okay to be satisfied with what you have. To purposefully choose a standard of living and to stick to it is how you allow generosity to be unleashed in your life. Because you've already decided, Lord, this is plenty. This is plenty. I don't need any more than this. I'm doing just fine. Something else practical you can do? Again, those of you note-takers, write this down. Start off your day by thanking God for 20 things. Start your day off that way. Thanking God for 20 different things. I've been doing this since Wednesday when I thought of this. I thought, well, I can't tell everybody on Sunday to do this if I'm not trying it myself. Can I just tell you personally how wonderful this has been for my heart? I have this very entitled heart. I want the world to revolve around me. And gratitude really is inextricably linked with saying, God, I am fully satisfied with you. I'm fully satisfied with all you've given me. I could not ask for more. I do ask for more, but I shouldn't, perhaps. Another way that I can engender contentment in my life is look for somebody to bless and then bless them. I joked with you guys last week, if you were here with us, But I know when somebody at ARCF sets aside a little bit of cash to be generous towards somebody, this is exactly what your stack of cash looks like. I'm sure this is exactly what it looks like. But nonetheless, I had the picture on my hard drive, and so here it is. Find somebody that you can bless and then bless them. A bunch of you already did that over the last two days in buying a tent for a total stranger because you believed, as I do, that no image bearer should be sleeping out in the rain all night long when it's cold. Find somebody to bless and bless them. This is a way to build contentment in your life. How many of you guys know that you've, or you've experienced, and you can testify, that you've heard a pitch, whether it was online or face-to-face, you've heard somebody saying, please give your money to a good cause, and you couldn't deny that it was a good cause, but you could feel a tug of war inside your heart because, oh, I was saving that money for thus and such. And now, the thus and such that you were saving for, you have to do a little forensic accounting in your own heart and go, Do I need that? Is it a want or is it a need? Oh, right? Choosing to be generous in practical ways with other people is a way to constantly say, God, I trust with what you've, you've provided for me. God, I am thankful for what you've provided. God, you have given me more than enough. That's what generosity does. You have taken care of me, and I know you always will. So I can, and I will, and I choose to be generous. Our brother Tim Keller, I don't know, those of you that were with us six months ago during the marriage series, and we had a book on the back table called The, um, the Meaning of Marriage by Tim and Kathy Keller. Tim Keller, pastor in Manhattan, says this way, Now that money isn't giving you identity, you're free to give it away. I don't use money to tell myself like, oh, I've made it, I've arrived, I've moved up to the Upper East Side, You know, I've lived in a certain neighborhood, I drive a certain car now, I'm a success, I'm awesome. As soon as money is no longer giving you your identity, but my identity as a Christian is, I am a child of God, blood bought by Jesus Christ. That's my identity now? Awesome. I don't need money for my identity. So I can hold loosely now to my cash and I can give it away generously. One more practical thing to engender contentment inside the Christian heart avoid borrowing money if you can in any way. Avoid borrowing money, especially back to what I said a moment ago wants versus needs. If you truly need something, that's one thing, I suppose. But when it's a want, ye, avoid borrowing money. Because if you're borrowing money for a want, if I am borrowing money for a want, I am now really, really saying to God, God, you have not given me all that I need. You gave me a job that gives me this much money a month or or this much money a year. And that job was insufficient to get me what I need, God. So I have to borrow from Visa or MasterCard in order to get what I really need. So I ask each Christian listening, search your own heart as it relates to debt. The Bible says over and over again that debt is unwise. It doesn't call it a sin, but it does call it unwise. And if we're borrowing to get a want, that's really, really something that should give us a pause in our spirit. That should be a kind of a yellow flag. Am I borrowing for a want? Yeah. Is that making a statement right now to God that He has not generously supplied all that I need? Paul David Tripp, who wrote our devotional at Christmas time, says this about debt. See, debt isn't fundamentally an overspending problem, it's a contentment problem. I'm not content with what God has provided for me. So, I'm going to use this little plastic card to get me what I think I need. One more practical thing we could do to engender contentment fight your fear instead of giving into it. Fight your fear instead of giving into it. In our uh, Walt Disney World theology, we always think that our emotions are inherently valid and good. They're valid in the sense that they're real, but we need to then decide what are we going to do with that emotion. Fear is not a place where we want to camp out. Amen? Does anybody enjoy being afraid? Okay, there are sickos at home that watch horror movies. I think you guys are crazy. I don't enjoy being afraid, but specifically as it relates to contentment, am I afraid that my job won't be there? Am I afraid my income won't be there? Am I afraid I'm going to lose my home? Am I afraid? Is is God not going to come through? The fear in Scripture, fear is something that we tackle it, and we do something with it. We do not sit passively. We're not a victim to it. We do something with it. You've probably heard, if you've been around church for a while, fear and faith are opposites. I think that's true, but so, so is this. Fear and contentment are also opposites. If I'm like Paul, where I'm okay and I have learned to live when things are great and I have learned to be content when things are terrible, you didn't hear Paul's voice filled with fear. He was not afraid of those low moments where his stomach was empty. He's like, yeah, I've been there before, done that. Jesus was enough for me. I found It It didn't happen naturally and easily, but I found it. I found contentment and Jesus was enough for me when I was really, really hungry and in prison. And I found a way for Jesus to be enough for me when I was really wealthy, not well, I mean, you shouldn't call him wealthy, but when, when his stomach was full and everything was fine and he might be tempted to not trust God, he found a way to still trust God. Fear in the Christian heart is this declaration of, God, I'm not sure you're going to come through. God, I'm not sure that you're going to provide Brother Larry Burkett, who taught finance a lot in the 70s and 80s, said this, Contentment is knowing God's plan for your life, having a conviction to live it, and believing that God's peace is greater than the world's problems. How many of you guys needed to hear those last two lines right there, right now? Brothers and sisters, some of you guys have just got to turn the news off. And you need to open your Bibles. Larry Burkett, at least. This isn't scripture. This is a brother's opinion. That one of the pieces of finding contentment is believing that God's peace, that I'm his child, that he's got this, is greater than the world's problems. We will be children of fear if we don't think that God's peace and strength and love and mercy are greater than the world's problems so I want to ask you again, I want you to tell you again, I should say, this is what Jesus is saying to you and to me right now. As it relates to contentment, he has given himself wholeheartedly to you, even giving his life on a cross, the cross you and I should have suffered for our cosmic treason against God and our offering to, that to you freely, he says, am I enough for you? And you get to decide your response. And I would argue that you have to decide. To turn off this live feed and walk away and distract yourself with a video game or a TV show, and to pretend that Jesus Christ is not asking you this question right now, That is a response. And I love you. And I want to press in on you. And I want to beg you. Please answer Jesus. And if your answer is not what you think he wants to hear, that's okay. He's strong enough. Like when one man 2,000 years ago said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Jesus, I want you to be enough for me, but my heart is so distracted by other things right now. Jesus, you are absolutely enough for me. Would you protect me from covetousness so that I honor you consistently with how I view money and how I feel about resources? Or maybe you're in a spot where you've never really been told before that Jesus was the God-man who laid down his life for you. You thought he was a mere historical figure or a philosophy teacher. Maybe you've never heard that before. And your response today needs to be, Wow, you know what? I do believe that. That's crazy, but I do believe that. And, and your call to action today is to answer this question, Yes. Yes, Jesus, you are enough for me. We sang earlier, I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. The cross before me, the world behind me. If God has changed your heart today, I need you to understand the decision that you're making. If Jesus Christ's claims about himself are totally true, and you find it to be a beautiful and powerful and compelling story that the God of the universe would lay down his life for his rebellious kids and that you want to be one of his children reconciled back to your father, you are about to turn your back on the rest of the world. And it doesn't mean that you don't talk to your family anymore. It doesn't mean you don't talk to your friends anymore. It's none of that. It's just that the opinions of others are not going to be allowed to be preeminent anymore. The love of money cannot be preeminent. Your philosophies cannot be preeminent. You're about to make Christ's view of reality first in your life. And it's going to come at a high cost. I want you to make that decision, but I want you to know the decision that you're about to make. He's going to be first and he's going to be only. And everybody else is going to play second fiddle behind Jesus if you decide today to be a Christian. If you've made that decision today, I want you to text me, 916-960-3869 or message me on Facebook. You can email me if you have my email. And we're going to connect you with a group of Christians that are going to help you study the Bible, teach you how to pray and figure out what is it that Jesus all is demanding me in this reorienting of my life. What are the demands He is making? And as I say, a lot around here. The great physician only de- makes the hard demands of the dark things inside us that he wants to take out so that they don't keep killing us. He loves you so much. And his demands are for your greatest joy and for your thriving. I love you not as nearly as much as he loves you. I'm going to pray. And then I'm going to share one more thing before we go. Holy Spirit, we ask that you'd make your word land on soft hearts, that you would effectively change our thinking, our actions, and especially our passions. We ask you to do it right now. We ask that you've done it during this teaching of the word. Jesus, for those of us that don't love you yet, we ask you to grant that love by a changed heart. And for those of us that already love you, God, we ask that you'd make us more and more obedient, God in thoughts and passions that day in and day out say, God, you are enough for me. Thank you for you. Thank you for your cross, for your victory of an empty tomb. Give us that, God. Give us that, that those of us who call ourselves Christians would live a life that is free from fear, free from the love of money. We ask this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ, all God's people said, Amen.